Welcome and thank you for joining us here for the Bread of Life, a ministry of the Bread of Life Fellowship of Boise, Idaho. Bread and water is what we need and what we have in Jesus Christ. He said, come to me and drink. He said, I am the bread of life. However we adorn our Christian faith, it rests in this most basic thing. Christ is all. Let's learn from him. Let's learn about him. Now here's our teacher, Joel Van Hoogen. Whenever you face a choice, you'll find yourself before some picture, some image in your mind, either of what you're hoping for in the future that influences your choice, or what you're responding to from the past. Images guide our choices. And so, to make the right choice, you have got to set your mind's eye on the right images. Take your Bibles and turn to Jeremiah chapter 35, and we'll look at that passage in just a moment. The title of the sermon is The Angles of a Noble Will, and the message is formed out of a meditation on two stories in the life of David. One is from the time when David had stopped going out to war with his men, and instead had determined to stay in his palace while they fought out in the various regions of the land, and It was during that time, you recall, that he viewed a woman from the walls of his palace bathing on the rooftop of her home, and he was filled with lust, and his desire overwhelmed him, and as you know, he committed adultery, and there were a series of sins that took place following that that led to a tremendous judgment, not simply on David, but upon his whole kingdom. The other story is a story that actually comes from a time period when David is fighting with his soldiers, and he's going out with them. It happens earlier on in his life and in his reign. And on this occasion, he's with a band of his men, and they're coming against Philistines who have taken over his hometown of Bethlehem, and they're occupied in Bethlehem. And as he's with his men in 2 Samuel chapter 23, David wistfully says among them, Oh, that I could drink from the water that is in the well of my hometown Bethlehem. There are three men that hear his sigh, And these three brave men go out in the night behind the enemy lines and they sneak into Bethlehem and they draw water out from the well and once they've received it, they bring it back and they place it in the hands of David. And on this occasion, David, if you recall, takes the water that they brought to him at the risk of their own lives, crossing enemy lines, entering into the town, and he pours that water out upon the ground and then 2 Samuel 23, verse 17, this is what David says. Far be it for me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of men who went in jeopardy of their lives? In other words, he assayed the water that was in his hands and realized that something far more precious than water was represented in what he held. What he held in his hand and what what was represented there was the value of the human life that was put at risk in order to satisfy a wistful thirst. And David was not willing to satisfy his thirst upon those waters that was brought to him at the risk of another person's life. I imagine he was actually quite thirsty. I imagine as well that there was a special memory of the sweetness of the water of the well that he had drunk from all his life as a boy growing up. And yet he, in this moment, steals his will in order to honor something greater than his own desire, in order to serve a principle greater than his own desire, and to place more value upon 
the blood and lives of men than on the satisfaction that he would receive from drinking that water. The blood of those men who put their lives at risk was more valuable to him at the moment than the drink that he desired. It's actually a wonderful picture in David's life on this, the second story, an illustration of the noble act of a determined will. I just want to say to you, just looking at that one story, that individuals are capable of willing their way to doing many noble things, many honorable things. They can choose to do what is right. In fact, that's the first thing that I want to have as a point for you this morning. The first point is simply this, that if you reflect upon it, there is tremendous power in the human will to do what is right. I'm not saying that the human will doesn't choose what is wrong consistently. I'm saying there is tremendous power in the human will to choose what is right, to do what is noble. That's where Jeremiah 35 comes in. And it will provide an example of this for us. There you have the story of the Rechabites. And the Rechabites are not members of the tribe of Israel. They're not from the families of Israel. They're a Gentile clan of people that have joined the nation of Judah, and God has brought them in, and God calls for Jeremiah to call the leaders of this large clan of people who lived in Judah among the Jews, but were not Jews themselves. God tells Jeremiah to call them and bring them into the temple precincts, in the temple grounds. And there with the leaders of this Gentile tribe, Jeremiah is instructed that he's to set before them a table and set them around a table and bring in large quantities of the finest wine and invite them to drink of that wine. So Jeremiah follows the instruction that God gives them. And when Jeremiah does this, and he sets this wine before them in the temple precincts, and you might probably think that it was in these places that the priest of God served, and so there would be priests that would have attended to them at that place, and dignitaries of the temple that would be there with the Rechabites in that place, that there was considerable pressure upon them to please the prophet who was honoring them and to honor the host of the temple who were honoring them and entertaining them in this place as they presented them with this wine. But if we read the story, they won't drink it. They say no. They explain that the father of their clan for many years before had been called to abstain from wine as a pledge of his commitment and their clan's commitment to serve the God of Israel. That they would follow the God of Israel, but they would not go into anything that potentially could corrupt them as they live within the land of Israel, among the people of Israel. And so for generations they said that they had refused, and their people had refused to drink wine. Now God speaks through Jeremiah the prophet, and God explains what it was that he was wanting to illustrate, and you'll find it in verses 14 and 15 of Jeremiah 35. What it was that he wanted to make known through this episode, and this is what God says. The words of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, which he commanded his sons not to drink wine, are performed. For to this day they drink none and obey their father's commandment. But although I have spoken to you, and now God directs the attention to the people of Judah and to the leaders that are there present, but although I have spoken to you, rising early and speaking, you did not obey me. I have also sent to you all my servants, the prophets, rising up early and sending them, saying, Turn now, everyone, from his evil way. Amend your doings, and do not go after other gods and serve them. 
Then you will dwell in the land which I had given you and your fathers, but you have not inclined your ear to obey me, nor obeyed me. Now, there are a number of things that we could draw from this story, and it doesn't serve the purpose of what I want to say this morning, but I just want you to see something amazing in this one thing. I want you to see that there is an act of determination, an act of will of a person. In this case, actually, it's the act of the willing of a whole people group who decide and can decide to do what is noble and carried on over a course of many long years and even handed on from one generation to the next. That's exactly what the Rechabites do. They won't, they won't drink wine. Not even in the most honored place, not even under the service and direction of the most feared man of God, they won't do it. And God was saying to all the people of Judah at that time, obeying me is a doable thing. It can be done. It can be done. You can do, you can will to do what is right. You can will to obey me. The problem is, you won't. You will not to obey me. And so again, I just want to say here that the power of the will to choose what is good and to do what God commands is possible. So what we have to ask ourselves in this case is, if it's possible to do what God wants, why don't we? (laughs) Why is it that our wills so often lead us away from God instead of into Him, away from His will and His purposes instead of into His will, away from obeying Him and following Him consistent to instead disobeying Him? and doing those things that don't please Him, that lead our wills away from God's will. Why is that? And to answer that question, I want to speak to you about a number of things, but I think just to answer that basic question, I want to suggest to you that our willing begins, what we will to do begins with the vantage point we hold when we approach it, when we make our decisions. And so this might be, in a sense, the first place or the first angle of a noble will, but it's this. When you set out to do the right thing or when you set out to do the wrong thing, what will proceed or lead you in your choosing is your viewpoint. It's your vantage point. It's your perspective. So let's talk about the perspective of the will or the vantage point of the will and how it works. There are a number of ways in which I might answer that question, why do our wills go wrong? But it begins at this point. It begins where we're looking. It begins with what we're seeing. The will is shaped by what it holds in view, by the perspective we have when we come to the point of choosing what we will and will not do. And we come to the point of choosing, what I'm trying to say is what we hold with our eyes or what we hold in our minds that goes a long way towards determining what we do with our hands or our mouths or with our feet. How often what we hold in our view is all of the memories. This is oftentimes what happens when we come to make a choice. We hold in our minds all the memories of past experiences that argue for our entitlement in doing whatever it is we want to do, as opposed to what God might want us to do. And we play through the various scenarios. We can go along and picture for ourselves all the points of justification for surrendering to some compromised action. We think of how we've been wronged. We think of how good we've been in light of other things. How deserving after some long struggle without any seeming reward, it seems only likely that we should choose at this point in time to, you know, we say it, you know, how much can a person take? I've been good for three months, whatever it is. 
We begin adding up these things. We put them all together. Line it all together so that as we look at this, it can bring a justification. And in painting these pictures of gaining a perspective or a vantage point that somehow justifies decisions that we make that we know are not in agreement with God's will, we have somebody who aids us. The devil comes along and he also wants to inform our minds with all kinds of information and all kinds of ideas to push us into those things because he, he doesn't want us to follow God's will either. You might remember when Satan came and was tempting the Lord Jesus after his baptism that there were three kind of sessions of temptation. And you'll see in each one of them there was a visual element to it. He was trying to manipulate with the Lord Jesus and how the Lord Jesus would respond by giving the Lord Jesus a vantage point and trying to interpret what it was he was seeing. Satan does that all the time. One of the ways that he leads you into sin is he, he brings you through a review of some sin that you've had in the past in your life and how you're in bondage to that sin. And he actually provokes in you certain desires as the memory comes to your mind. And he says, oh, you see, you still have a desire for that. And oh, you still have a memory for it. That's because that's what you were made for. And he tries to coax you into it that way. And well, Satan basically can only work with memories and the emotions that we have that are attached to them. And then he interprets false, he inter interprets false messages to them in order to lead us into compromise. What we're supposed to do actually is we're supposed to look at those things and we're supposed to add to it and not our memories and our emotions, but God's word and God's thought and God's truth. Thanks so much for listening today to The Bread of Life. Call us at 208-331-4096 for a copy of this message or go to our website at breadoflifeboise.org to learn more about our ministry. For now, God bless you.